got a great song to play, you know. Just, uh, uh, Hello. Have you ever snogged a lady? Um, we had a technical problem. Are we on? Yeah. <laughs> We're on there. Can I swear? Google says the word radio is a noun with two broad meanings. First, the transmission and reception of electromagnetic waves of radio frequency, especially those carrying sound messages. And second, the activity or industry of broadcasting sound programs to the public. But we know what radio really is. It's passion, creativity, education, dedication, communication, and getting paid 400 quid to open a refurbished quicksafe store. This is Crunch and Roll, the podcast that doesn't take the radio industry too seriously. So if you're after an in-depth analysis of the latest version of Zeta or techniques to hook more listeners across the ad break, then this isn't the podcast for you. I'm Foxy, done breakfast shows across the UK, more recently programmes on the BBC. And today's guest is probably one of the best-known and well-loved presenters in the Northwest and, and Dubai, for that matter. It's Rick Orton. I'm not going to tell you too much about this episode, other than it's an absolute beauty. And uh, it's Ken Bates' material and impression are amazing. Buckle up for some naughty words and R-rated content. Let's crunch and roll. Oh, yeah. Rick Orton, how are you, my friend? Very well, John. How are you? I'm good. I, I was just, um, I was driving into the studio uh, this morning thinking, when was the last time I physically saw your face? And it must be well over 20 years ago. <laughs> In um, a gutter. Uh, <laughs> and the time that, um, the last time I saw your face would have been when you and I and Mike Borden had gone for a pizza. Do you remember that afternoon? Uh, not really. I remember Mike Borden. He's vanished off the face of the earth, hasn't he? I'm going to be honest. It was very scouse. I, I didn't really understand what was going on and what was being talked about with you and Mike. It was, yeah, right there, mate, sound. Yeah, it was great, mate. And I was just sat there thinking, I haven't got a clue what these two are talking about. So where were you when that, when that happened? Were you at air then? No, I was at Viking. Ah, right. And he was running Viking? That's correct. Yeah. Yes, and, uh, I do remember that. Yeah. Uh, no, you're just pretending, Rick. Obviously, it wasn't a memorable afternoon, and I'm absolutely fine with that. It's, uh... <laughs> no, I remember it. I remember it because I think later on that day, me and him um, shared numerous bottles of wine, and he was trying to persuade me to go to Viking to do something. I can't remember what it was. <laughs> that, that sounds like my boredom. Um <laughs> <laughs> well, um, let's start right at the beginning then, Rick. So uh, I, I ask the same question pretty much every pod, but where did your passion start for radio, my friend? Uh, it's very clear to me. I was eight years old. I had uh, control of my mum and dad's record deck, and they had about three or four seven-inch singles. Um, I'd listened to radio in a mate's car, and I'd gone home and thought, wow, that's great. So I started speaking to myself as I was turning the seven-inch records over on the record deck. So whilst I was doing that, I was talking to myself as if I was on the radio, and I was eight years old, and that's where the passion started, and it never left me. Were you born in Liverpool, Rick? Yeah, North Liverpool, Crosby. So I'm guessing if you were born in Liverpool, your dream was to be on Radio City, was it? Yeah, I think so. Radio City, when I was growing up, was was iconic. Uh, there were some amazing names and broadcasters on there. I'm talking about people like Mark Jones, also Billy Butler and uh, oh, Norman Thomas. That was it. Just fabulous broadcasters. And I think listening to that um, and including the likes of Phil Easton, of course, listening to that just, just made me want to be there. So you're playing with records on your parents' record deck, and then we, we, we quickly go forward to 1990, and you get your first professional gig, not at Radio City, 
but at Rock FM. Uh, no, before that, it was 1989. I went to Plymouth Sound in Devon. Wow. Um, because my so so basically to cut a long story short, I was answering phones and making a tea at Radio Merseyside and at Radio City for Pete Waterman's show from the age of about 14. And when I was at Radio Merseyside, that allowed me to use their spare studios um, because I was answering phones on a late night show on a Monday night. And that meant I could make some demos. And my auntie and uncle live in Plymouth and they saw an advert um, advertising for an evening presenter at Plymouth Sound. And I took one of these demos I'd made and sent it off. And lo and behold, a lovely guy called Mark Seaman, who has been in radio for forever, had me down for a chat. And he said, right, well, you've got the evening show. And it turned out that at the age of 16, I think I was the youngest commercial presenter in the UK at the time. And that was evenings at Plymouth Sound. So that lasted about six or seven months because I was very homesick. And then I came back to the Northwest and ended up doing cover work and a few overnights at Rock FM. So you were 16 years old, Rick, when you moved down to Plymouth? Yes, 16 years old, <laughs> living by myself. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a bit nuts. So you were living by yourself at 16 years old? <laughs> well, I was living at my auntie and uncle's, but they were at work all day and I was doing an evening show. So I'd leave for work at five and get back at about, 10, 30, 11. So they'd be in bed. So it was like living on my own because wow. I didn't see anyone. That is incredible. All right. So you go to Preston, Rock FM. What was it like, um, I guess, moving closer to home? It must be getting more exciting for you. Yeah, it was. Uh, the guy who'd got me an in at BBC Radio Merseyside was, was called Kenny James. And he, at that time, was at Rock FM. So it was a, a kind of easy fit, really, because I came back from Plymouth uh, phoned him and he said, all right, I'll see what I can sort out. Mark Matthews was the PD and I went in and did, yeah, cover and overnights. I think there was there was two or three of us sort of sharing overnights at the time at Rock FM. So we do a couple of days a week each. And then let's, because um, I'm excited to get onto Radio City because um, we've not had many people on Crunch and Roll who have been on Radio City. I think Sean Tilly's perhaps the, the only one. Um, what was it like? Because I, I know having got a show uh, and done breakfast on my hometown station, how magical that is. C can you remember the emotions, Rick, when you got the call? And talk me through the process of how you got the position when you got that call and you finally got on Radio City. Dave Lincoln was the MD at Rock FM. And overnight, EMAP bought Kiss FM in London and Radio City in Liverpool. They were EMAP's first purchases. And... Dave Lincoln was poached from Rock FM to be the MD of Radio City. And he said, oh, there's this young kid, Rick, who we think would be really good on, on, on Radio City because he, he's a local lad and it was the evening show. Uh, and I remember getting the call and going into Radio City Studios in Stanley Street. Tony McKenzie was the PD. And I remember having the meeting and it all was really positive and then throwing up in the bin as soon as the meeting had finished because I was so excited and so churned up by the idea I was going to be on my home radio station. Um, yeah, I threw up for about an hour. Tony McKenzie. I've heard a few people mention Tony McKenzie. So a good boss for you? One of the best bosses I've ever had. And it was weird because Tony McKenzie would put the, live, the fear of God into people. Um, when he was at a, a, a PD at stations. So, for instance, he he went on to become PD at Metro, and I went up there and worked for him for a, a year or so. 
And I remember meetings where people were actually frozen with fear that Mackenzie was going to kick off. Um, but I always got on really well with him. So I'd always be like the class joker, you know. He had a really good personality, loved a beer, but was always really reticent to, to, to show that side of himself to the staff, if you know what I mean. But if you got him out on a night out, he was unbelievable. Do you know, there's there's quite a few bosses I've had who... Um... Uh, Jacqueline Hyde when it comes to, to being sober and then having a beer one of which um, I won't mention his name but we all used to try and get him drunk because we knew that he'd sit down in the boozer and tell you how much everybody else was on like, <laughs> <laughs> fond memories of that now you mentioned that Rick so, so Stanley Street like my knowledge of the history of Radio City is zilch so that that Stanley Street is not the tower is it no, Stanley Street is now, well, Stanley Street now is the the, the gay street in Liverpool. Uh, Liverpool has a really small gay area. You know, in Manchester, you've got Canal Street and that whole area, the gay village. In Liverpool, it's just one street, which is now Stanley Street. Um, but at the time, um, it wasn't like that. But the, but the Radio City building was on four floors. Um, it was like a labyrinth. It was amazing because I, I don't know if you remember, but Radio City famously had a 24-hour newsroom until the late 90s. So every bulletin was live from, from Stanley Street. So they didn't use um, IRN. Everything was live. Um, and there was, there was one time when I was doing evenings. Um, uh, this is the early 90s. And we had a freelance newsreader. I love this story. Um, so picture the scene. I'm in the studio on FM and there's a big studio window behind me and, and behind that is a small corridor that led to the news booth, which was on the other side of the corridor with another window. So I could turn behind me and look to make sure the newsreader was in place because we did clock start news, right? Yeah. So AM, uh, the guy on AM Radio City Gold couldn't see the news booth. So it was all clock start because we shared the bulletin between FM an AM, but there was an opt-out. So after five minutes of news, they'd say something like, it's Radio City News. And FM would go into their top of the hour and start playing music. And AM would stay with the news for their full-length bulletin, which was 12 minutes long. Wow. So, so we, had this, we had this freelance guy who was a bit of a character, and I won't mention his name because it would be unfair. Um, but at the time, I remember we had like a 30-second news in because we were running a promotion and it mentioned it in the news in or whatever. So I hit my uh, my news in at 59.30, you know, to get the clock start at the top of the hour. And I turned behind me. It was a natural reaction. You turn behind you, just make sure the news reader's there. He wasn't there. So I'm thinking, I'm, I'm watching the clock and this thing's counting down and the news in is playing. He's still not there. Next minute, door opens. This guy comes flying down the corridor, clutching all his copy and all his carts. And as he gets past opposite my window, he slips like he's on a banana skin. <laughs> his legs go in the air and all the carts and all the copy goes flying. <laughs> so the news in still playing. He's gathered it all up. He's got into the news booth and the news starts like this. It, the jingle finishes. Radio City News. <sighs> <sighs> Good evening. It's it's eight o'clock. I'm whatever his name was, and he starts reading his first line of copy. And at that time, Radio City had loads of reporters and loads of reports. Right, so he starts reading his first line of copy, and he says, "Graham White reports," and he hits the cart, 
and it's the wrong car. It's not Graham White. So he stops it and he says, sorry about that. We'll we'll come back to that story a little bit later on. <laughs> and he goes into his next bit of copy and he's reading that. And then he says, uh, John Devo reports. And he hits the car and it's the Graham White story. <laughs> so he stops that. He stops that and he goes, sorry about that. I'll, I'll bring you that later. He goes into his first, third piece of copy. At this point, I am... Uh, legs up on the desk reading the newspaper <laughs> because I know I've got five minutes, right? So I'm not really paying that much attention to the to the bulletin, even though it's comedy gold. By the time he reads the third piece of copy, he presses the cart and it's still the wrong story. <laughs> so then he says this, ladies and gentlemen, it's one minute past eight. I am abandoning this news bulletin. I repeat, I am abandoning <laughs> this news bulletin. So I'm, I'm sitting, I've got, what did he say? I'm like, oh shit, get a CD on quick. Let's like put the, do something. Now to make matters worse, the guy on Radio City Gold had gone to the pub. <laughs> no way. So you've got 12 minutes to sink a pint. Yes, there was a pub next door. So we got, I've got 12 minutes. I've got to have a pint. <laughs> So Radio City Gold never came back. I, you know, I, they're probably still dead air there. Uh, it was just the most bizarre thing. That is an amazing story, Rick. I love it. I love it. And, and do you know one thing? We often share pictures on Facebook of our uh, our time in the industry. I, I often love it when you share yours because when you were at Radio City, you really were a pinup boy, weren't you? Because you, you were <laughs> 17 years old, a good-looking, long-haired dude. And th th there were crowds of girls waiting for you to come out of the studio when you'd done your show, weren't there? Yeah, it is bizarre, that, because at the time, we had four channels on the TV, no mobile phones, no internet. So radio was massive. And if you were on Radio City, to be fair, you were a bit of a, without, you know, blowing, blowing our own trumpets, you were a bit of a rock star. We all had sign-written XR3Is from... Oh, wow the local Ford dealer. Um, and, you know, we, when we did road shows, it was like doing a summer tour. You know, there was, I remember once we did a road show and Boyzone, who were number one of the charts at the time, their manager came over to our PR girl and said, can you ask your Radio City DJs to stop signing autographs backstage because they're actually making Boyzone look bad. <laughs> uh, so it, it was great. It was brilliant. Um, I remember once coming out of Radio City and I'd left an envelope with my home address upturned on the passenger seat of my car. And the next weekend, there were 40 or 50 girls outside wow. the house. It was it was just, it was nuts. And it was a lovely feeling, but I think it was also something that, I think it kept us a bit grounded, actually, because we thought it would have been really easy to let all that go to your head, but I think it had the opposite effect. I think it made us all really appreciative of what we had. And was Radio City sounding good then? Yeah, Tony McKenzie was a really good PD. And one thing that he he did... He'd been a marine engineer in the past, and I think he'd worked on one of the pirate ships as the ship's engineer. So he knew his way around um, equipment. So he he set up the um, the Optimod better than anyone I've ever known set it up. It was the processing was fantastic. It was amazing, um, and I think back then the music policy was really good. We were a, we were a hip music station, but we had good variety of, of, of older stuff in there as well. The lineup was great. It was Tony Snell on breakfast, John O'Hara on mids. Then it was uh, Paul Jordan on lunchtimes, Tony McKenzie himself on drive me on evenings. 
And late nights was kind of a, a myriad of different presenters who came and went over the years, including one of my best friends in radio, which was Brian Moore. Um, there was a guy on late nights called Cass Jones. Um, and the guy on overnights was John Jessup, another good friend of mine. But Cass Jones and John Jessup hated each other. And John Jessup used to have this really long theme tune when he started his overnight show at 2 a.m. Uh, it was called, and the, the theme tune was The Night Cruiser, The Night Cruiser. And this went on for about seven minutes at the top of his show. So this time, uh, this one time, they never did a handover link, these two, because they really genuinely did not like each other. And Cass Jones, in his one of his final links, he said, uh, new survey out today. He said, uh, people, uh, men with small penises compensate by buying large cars and big houses. The only reason I mention this is because John Jessup's on next and he's got an awfully long theme tune. Apparently, <laughs> apparently Jessup had him up by the neck on the wall of the studio. It's just great. <laughs> well, of course, you, you come back to Radio City, so we'll touch on that in just a bit. But then you, you then go on. I mean, you're a very brave man, Rick. So a scouser goes to Key 103 in Manchester. Yeah, well, yeah. I remember once almost being beaten to a pulp for wearing a Liverpool shirt on FA Cup final day in Manchester. Um, but yeah, I went to Manchester and again, Dave Lincoln had left Radio City and he'd gone to become MD of Key 103. And yeah, I, I went across and Mark Story was the PD with Keith Pringle. Um, Keith left shortly after I joined, but it was a great line. It was Steve Penk. It was Scott Mills on mids. It was Pete Mitchell on lunchtimes, me on drive, and Simon Walkington on evenings, I believe. Wow. Stellar lineup uh, again there. I'm trying to work out your age at this point. So in 1994, Key 103, you would have been 20 years old, 20, 21 years old? Uh, yeah, I think so, yeah. I mean, did you realize that you would? just been presenting on two of the biggest radio stations in the UK? Uh, yeah, I suppose I did. Um, Key 103 was a lot different to Radio City. So at Radio City, you were treated like a bit of a star. And like you said, there was all the girls outside the studio and all that stuff. Key 103 was, was almost the opposite. You didn't feel as though people knew you were, you were there. And there was no sort of adoration from listeners like there was at Radio City. So I found it a little difficult at first, but I was able to sort of carve out a bit of a niche doing drive. Uh, Joe Blakeway was the eye in the sky girl, and me and her had a really good on-air relationship. Um, so that really helped. And I think, you know, I was Key 103 always seemed a little bit more serious than Radio City, and and probably for good reason. I think at the time it was the biggest station outside of Capital in London. I think we're doing a million listeners a month, and now they're doing under 200,000. So it just shows you the, the change in that station over the years. But, it, yeah, it was a big deal. We're having a party. Oh, yeah. Now, this is the bit where I, I'm really interested because you then moved to, in 1997, you moved to Dubai to be the gaffer at Channel 4, which is is a big station. Um, did you, in 1997, did you set that station up? Yeah, um, from scratch, which was really interesting. So at Key 103, I was, it had come to contract renewal. John Dash was the PD, who I got on with really well and really liked. Dave Lincoln, the MD, I think had, had got fed up with me because uh, by this point, 
Well, first of all, I'd, I'd started going drinking with James Stanage, and, and that's always a bad thing. <laughs> so, you know, we'd, we'd end up in the Manchester Press Club at 4 a.m., and then James would say, right, baby, let's go to Withenshaw Market. They serve ale for the overnight truckers, baby. Um, so I'd, I'd kind of fall, fallen on that side of the line. I think Dave Lincoln w- would have preferred me to stay prim and proper, uh, so the contract came up for renewal, and they said to me, uh, we want to put you on a – think about it now. They want to put me on a three-year deal, and the, the the pay increase wasn't that much. And I knew at the time I was probably the lowest paid on daytime. And also at the time, I was very much in touch with Capital through Clive Dickens and Richard Park. And I said, well, I – I'd only like to sign a year's contract, please, and I want X amount of money. And when it went back to Dave Lincoln, he said, right, forget it. Let's get rid of him. So John Dash sat me down. He went, oh, unfortunately, we're not renewing your contract at all. Um, and I think I still had six or seven months on the existing contract to go. So I kind of thought, oh, God, what am I going to do next? So someone had mentioned to me that they were setting up this first ever English commercial station in, in Dubai. I didn't even know where Dubai was. It wasn't trendy at the time. No one was talking about it. Um, and I went, yeah, may as well do that. And then I can reconsider my position in the UK. Cause I thought you could go from key one Oh three. You, you either want to go to sort of capital radio one or anything else would be a sort of backwards move. So I thought, well, Dubai will be fantastic at this point in my career. So yeah, off I went. And there was three of us who flew over, um, Steve Johnson, um, a guy called Josh. And we started with a bunch of now CDs and it was all very makeshift, but we made it work. And overnight it sort of transformed the, the media landscape in Dubai. Um, everyone listened because it was the first time they'd ever heard local commercial radio as we would have heard it in the UK. And is it true that people that went to Dubai earned big amounts of money? Yeah, back then, uh, the pay was good and the opportunities alongside what you were doing in the radio was was really good too. So, for instance, and there are photos and video somewhere, which I hope stay where they are, um, I ended up hosting the Dubai version of Supermarket Sweep on the TV. Uh, I also did a game show called Aladdin where I dressed as an Arab and gave away cars. I was just nuts. And uh, on the radio station itself, we used to give away gold bars. You know, well done, caller number three. You've won a gold bar. Uh, so there was lots of money around then. Um, not so much now, as far as I know, but back then it was like, so we're talking 97, Dubai was just starting out as as trying to attract Westerners and trying to attract tourism and commerce. So there was a lot of money around and it was a really exciting time. So you spend uh, a year out in Dubai and you do return, but we'll get back to that in a bit. And then you come back to the UK and then you return to Rock FM. Yeah, so in total, I was at Rock FM three times. Well done, Rick. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, Rock FM was like, I, I call it my lifeboat station uh, because it was like, if if the chips were down, I knew I could phone someone who would be at Rock FM and, and almost certainly get something. <laughs> Just sounds ridiculous. Uh, so, yeah, 
So I was in Dubai and I was thinking, right, I've done a year now. I'm a bit worried that my career in the UK would suffer because a lot of times when you go abroad, it's like you've vanished. So I went back to Rock FM because Paul Jordan was the PD at the time who I'd worked with at Radio City. And I went back and did mid-mornings on Rock FM. Do you know, every time I speak to somebody who has done a gig at Rock FM, there's always a lot of love for that station. Yeah, it was fantastic. The teams I worked with on three separate occasions were all brilliant, all really good friends of mine. Uh, the, the Rockin' Church, the building, just had something about it. It was just, it was fantastic. The studios were great. Uh, there was always a really good sort of young, trendy vibe about Rock FM. And shortly after I went there for the second time in 98, Andy Roberts became PD. His production was just off the scale so we sounded really hot we sounded just the coolest station um and i always remember listen when you listen to rock fm you got the impression in your head that all the jocks lived in a big frat house together that's how it sounded on air because everyone was talking about each other we were talking about you know what what we'd done last weekend because in invariably we'd all been out on 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 the booze together so it was great now, obviously, I mean, you look down your CV, Rick, and you were, were loved by EMAP, which means you must have attended quite a few EMAP awards. Yeah, uh, the first one. Were you at the first EMAP awards, John? Which, which one was that, Rick? Blackpool. No. No, that sounds, that sounds filthy. Tell me about that. Oh, so where was I at the time? Oh, I was at Key 103. So this must have been pre-97. It must have been maybe 96, I think, the first EMAP Awards. So it was in Blackpool at the Hilton in Blackpool. And I was already good mates with Rossi and Kev Seed. I remember at one point we stripped Rossi naked, pushed him into the lift and hit every floor so the doors <laughs> would open. Every floor he went up. Um, there was something else that happened that day. Oh, that's right. So I was at Q103. Scott Mills was on mid-mornings. And the following morning, I was having breakfast with Mark Story. And it was about 10 o'clock. And the door opened to the breakfast room and Scott Mills walked in. And Mark went, oh, hello, Scott. Are you, are you not supposed to be on the... That was a terrible impression. Are you not supposed to be on the air? And he was. He was supposed to be on the air in Manchester at, at Q103 at 10. And he just got out of bed. So... Yeah, the EMAP Awards were absolutely legendary. I remember Kev Seed, my good friend Kev, at every EMAP Awards he ever attended, whenever someone won an award, he would go on the stage to have his photo taken with whoever, whoever had won. He did it year after year after year. It was great. <laughs> Do you know, talking about Kev Seed, and we'd love to try and get him on this, um, he, he was a bit of a legend, wasn't he, at Radio City? Oh, massive. I mean... I think probably in, in the history of Radio City, he was the most popular, the most legendary presenter they ever had. Now, um, let's go to 1999. You go, you go up north. I mean, you moved around a bit, Rick. You go to Metro. Yeah, yeah um, I went to Metro because Tony McKenzie had, uh, was there as PD. Mackenzie was living in a camper van in the car park. He decided he didn't want to spend any money on on renting a place. So he, yeah, he had his camper van in the car park of Metro radio and I went up there to do drive, but then Tony Horn left the breakfast show. So I went on to breakfast. So I think I did a six or seven months on breakfast until they employed a girl called Anna Schofield to cover that show. Yeah. And I left 
not under a cloud, but I, I kind of thought I've done a good job on breakfast. Why don't you just keep me on it? And so I, my nose was a little bit out of joint, but then, uh, coinciding with that other things came about so i think i went back to dubai for some yeah i did i went back to dubai and did five years in dubai after that so there was other opportunities around you did return to dubai back to channel four i mean was was there any reason that was purely because you got booted off breakfast you went back to dubai uh, the opportunity uh, for dubai was there and again the money was really quite good in uh, dubai at the time and i was lucky um 9 happened and i was doing I think I was doing drive when I first got back to Dubai and nine 11 happened. There was a newsreader called Daniel Thompson, who was Canadian and he was on the news shift when nine 11 happened. And because of the time difference, nine 11 happened at about, I don't know, 3 PM Dubai time. So obviously we covered it. And I said to Danny, I said, just leave the newsroom, come into the studio and we'll do this whole thing together. And we, we stayed on the air, I think, for an extra two or three hours just covering the events. And me and him just realized that we had this really good bond. So then we were asked to do breakfast. So me and him became sort of the, the breakfast double act. And it lasted for nearly five years. And it was great. I've got some really good memories of that and some really good audio and genuinely funny stuff. He was more of a producer um, and a almost a comedy writer as well. So the stuff we did together just worked, and he worked really hard. I didn't. I, you know, I'd turn up at five to six and leave at five past ten. But he would work on daily promos, and he'd work on doing uh, comedy sketches for the show. And we had characters, and it was just like a sort of zoo format breakfast show, but just with me and him. And it really, it was great. I really enjoyed it. Do you know, a previous guest on Crunch and Roll mentioned you and uh, talked about his time in Dubai, Jonathan Miles. Um, ah, yes, I heard his podcast. Yeah, and um, I, I know the rules are very strict in Dubai, but it would seem that you all got up to quite a lot of mischief. Is that, oh, God, is that right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, one of the biggest features on my breakfast show was um, Blankety Blank, which was the same format as the UK TV version of Blankety Blank. So, you know, fill in the blank, phone us now. But we renamed it Wankety Blank. <laughs> and we and we re-sang the jingle. So it was Wankety Blank, Wankety Blank. Doom, doom. All the Brits loved it. Because, but the, the Arabs didn't know what the word wank was. So it was it was perfectly fine. I remember Jonathan Miles being on the air at Channel 4. And if someone had if someone had annoyed him, he used to say things like, I hope your armpits are infested with a thousand camel fleas. Uh, <laughs> we got away with absolute murder. <laughs> Wankety Wank is now my favorite radio game ever, Rick. Congratulations, yeah. you get the award. <laughs> um, right, so you, you, five years in Dubai, and then you, you, you return back to Radio City to do Drive. Yeah, I was really lucky, and it was quite bizarre. Tom Hunter then was the MD of Radio City. Sean Tilly had just left Drive, and Tom Hunter had called me and said, would you like to do Drive on Radio City? And I went, I'd love to. But at the time, I was earning stupid amounts of money in Dubai. I was doing, I was doing the radio. I was doing gigs. I was doing TV. I was also commentating on Formula One for... 20 million viewers in Asia, bizarrely. Uh, things were going great. So I said, well, I'd, I'd love to come back to Radio City, but 
at the moment I'm, I'm earning really good money. So I flew back to meet him and Richard Maddock, who was the PD at Radio City at the time. And they agreed to, to pay me far much more than I was worth, if you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I went to do drive at Radio City. I had actually taken quite a big pay cut from what I was earning in Dubai, but it was, it was a stupid amount for, for UK radio. And that lasted for two years. And then Tom Hunter had left as MD. And I think they realized we're paying him a stupid amount of money here. Let's get rid of him after his contract expires. Now you mentioned Tom Hunter there, because that is a character that I, I, I met once. And, um, certainly a character in the industry. Now, is the story true, Rick? Because when you returned to Radio City in 2005, that's when you'd have returned to the tower, the famous tower. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Is the story true? And I've been told this story and then told other people this story, not knowing if it is actually true. So is it true that Tom Hunter had signed a deal on the lease for that tower, but not got permission from anybody else in EMAP, and it was going to cost a lot of money? Uh, I don't know is the honest answer. I, I know that he had the vision to be in the tower and I think he'd signed a deal simply because he wanted to be the first person to, to get into the premises because at the time there was, there was competition from people who wanted to turn it back into a restaurant, which it had been previously. Um, there was other people that I think wanted to turn it into flats or something. So I think I get the impression he signed a deal with ne- without necessarily okaying it with the hierarchy of EMAP. He signed it because he wanted to make sure that they would actually get the premises. But then after that, as far as I know, EMAP went, yeah, okay, fine. Because for me, a lot of people say that the Capitol Building in London is probably one of the most iconic radio buildings. But for me, it's got to be that tower. I mean, there must be some story. What's it like broadcasting in that tower? On a windy day, it's the most horrible experience ever. <laughs> <Is it? laughs> Uh, so the tower doesn't snap. It's designed to bend in the wind, and boy, does it bend in the wind. So, I mean, literally, you can see the horizon through the windows moving wow. like you were on a cruise ship. Wow. Um, but apart from that, one of the disappointing things, I think, is that you get up there, and when you first go up, you're like, wow, look at the views. And then after you've been there for a few months, you, you kind of take it all for granted. So you don't really notice the majesty of being up there in the clouds. Um, but yeah, when it's windy, it's horrendous. I remember the engineer used to hand out seasickness pills on a windy day um, <laughs> because people would literally be green. I mean, it was it was horrendous. It's, it flexes something like eight feet in in any direction in the wind. So it's it's yeah, it's not nice. I'm guessing it's a, it's a lift to the top. So that lift must have broken down on several occasions. Do you know what? Touch wood. Um, the number of times. So I'm trying to think of cumulatively how many years I've spent in the tower. So, yeah, I've spent 13 years probably in the tower. Never once did I get stuck in the lift. Wow. Plenty of other people did. And the lifts used to scare me a little bit. They go from ground to the studio level in 30 seconds. They're very quick. Um, and they have got stuck on many occasions, but not with me in it. Thank God. <laughs> that would be the worst, wouldn't it? Now, um, Radio City Drive, you, then, you, you moved back to Dubai, Rick. I mean, did you, did you have a flat out there that you had to sort out? A garden was looking a bit no, overgrown? No, 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 no. So 2007, Radio City don't renew my contract because I was on that stupid, ridiculous amount of money, which is actually a regret of mine. I, I, it, was, it was silly to 
to go for for that that sort of of money. I think, but you know, at the time you do it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so they decided not to renew my contract, and I went back to Rock FM in two thousand and seven, working for Anthony Gay. Uh, the first day of that job was fun. He said. Um, for the first two weeks when you arrive, I want you to cover breakfast. And I went, yeah, okay. Um, and I was doing my first breakfast show back at Rock FM, working for Anthony Gay. And I'd recorded a parody song because Heather Mc- Mills McCartney was going into the American version of Strictly Come Dancing. And I recorded a parody, parody song, which was Paul McCartney um, singing, I hope your leg falls off, I hope your leg falls off. Um, and I played this at 8.30, and the XD rang, and it was Anthony Gay, who who simply said, my office, 10 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't even met the guy at this point. So, so I, I get off the air at 10 thinking, oh, he's, he's going to be full of praise. I've worked really hard on that parody song. And he went, what the hell are you doing? He said, you know the rule from Steve King, no parody songs, no wind-up calls. We don't do it anymore. Um, so that was the start of my relationship there. But subsequently, I got on really well with Ant. He was great. Um, so I was at Rock FM. Then Bizarrely was offered the PD's role at Juice in Liverpool, which I was really excited about. I thought, oh, that would be great. Um, it would have been my first management role in the UK uh, for a young, trendy station that was doing really good things in Liverpool. And I was offered the PD's job. Um, at this point, John Dash was the group PD of UTV who owned Juice. And I was all set to start at Juice. In the meantime, I get a phone call from an old boss in Dubai who was opening a new radio station called Coast FM in Dubai. And he said, we want you to come over and we want you to do breakfast like you used to. We want to put you and Danny Thompson back together. This is going to be amazing, blah, blah, blah. And I gone, let me stop you there. I said, I just signed a, a deal to go to Juice FM. I'm really looking forward to it, blah, blah, blah. And they said, well, what would it take? And I said, oh, it, it, it wouldn't take anything. I, I can't do it. And that was that. And an hour later, the phone rings again, and it's the owner of this new coast FM who says, um, how does 150,000 pounds sound with accommodation provided, blah, 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 blah. And I went, wow. Okay. Now at the time I was, uh, I was married at the time and my wife, um, let's, let's face it. She was, she was all about a dollar. She, she loved a wonga. <laughs> so she said, you can't pass up this opportunity. Um, you go over there, me and the kids will follow. You find schools for the kids, me and the kids will follow. And by the way, send 80% of your salary back each month to me. Yeah. So stupidly, I went, I ditched the juice job oh, and, and went to Dubai, sent 80% of my salary back. The kids and the wife never followed. In fact, whilst I was there, she divorced me. Oh, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> and and Coast FM had all kinds of problems you know they'd spent a lot of money um but they had they had a transmitter which really didn't work so you the transmitter was out way out in the sticks in the middle of the desert and most of the time the signal never reached dubai (laughs) so (laughs) so no one could hear us slight issue and then and then the financial crash of 2008 happened and 
they basically closed the station um, after about seven months of us being there. So they, they went, oh, that's it. We, we haven't made any money. No one can hear us. And, um, well, the financial crash has happened, so goodbye. And that was that. I've just got an image of you stuck in Dubai Airport like Tom Hanks in that film Terminal, like not knowing where to go next. It was a bit like that. And and because and the, and the weird thing was, because I whilst all that was going on, I'd got divorced. Um, I, so I had no house. Um, I came back and literally and had to go back and live with my mum and dad in Crosby, Liverpool. And obviously at the time had no no career to to move on to. So it was I was lucky that Dave Shearer, a good friend of mine, was was the PD at Real Radio in the Northwest. So I ended up doing cover work for Real and then got in back into Radio City doing cover work for them and I did Radio City Sport for a while. So I was lucky I was able to pick up, uh, you know, little tidbits of work here and there and went back to sort of DJing in bars and stuff. And it, it was pretty good. And then I I met my uh, my current missus, who is gorgeous and lovely and has transformed my life and all is good. Now, you mentioned ra- Real Radio there, uh, Radio City, and then you become the PD. You've been a PD a few times now, Rick, but you go to Radio Yorkshire. Did you Did you enjoy being a boss? Uh, yes and no when I was a boss I always liked to be liked I suppose so in the moments when I should have probably been quite harsh I probably wasn't harsh enough and that I think was the was the downfall of my management career in that some of the best bosses I worked with you knew exactly what your position was. You knew that if you if you overstepped the line, you you were in for a big bollocking. And when I was a boss, I think I was probably, if anything, I was probably a little bit too soft. Um, but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the process. I enjoyed the organizational thing. I enjoyed putting teams together and working with teams. The Radio Yorkshire thing was really bizarre. Uh, it was Ken Bates, who was the previous owner of Chelsea FC, and then he'd gone to Leeds and owned Leeds. And he'd sold Leeds United to uh, some Arabs. He'd, um, I think they were, yeah, they were based in the UAE. He'd sold it, sold it to someone there, and they'd cut him out of a of a some sort of management deal where he was going to stay on as executive chairman, and that was the deal. But then a few months later, they decided, no, we're not having him. Um, so he literally set up Radio Yorkshire as kind of a revenge against Leeds United. So the studios were right opposite Ellen Road. And he would insist on being interviewed on a weekly basis. And his interviews consisted of basically him slagging off the current owners of Leeds United. (laughs) And Ken Bates was, if I wrote a book, at least a chapter would be on Ken Bates. And I only worked with a guy for six months. Um, He was, he was unbelievable. So you'd walk into a restaurant and he'd click his fingers and say, turn that background music off. <laughs> and at one point, I was in a restaurant with him, and there was a baby crying, and he'd go, Madam, shut that baby up. <laughs> and I just, you know, and he lived in Monaco, so he's only allowed in the UK for a certain amount of days per year for his nom-dom status. So I'd work in Leeds Monday to Friday. On a Friday night, I'd drive back over the M62 to Liverpool, and my Emma... Um, 
would me and her would spend the weekend together, and then I'd drive back to Leeds on a Sunday night to start work on a Monday morning. And more often than not, this used to happen. So I'd get home on a Friday. We'd be relaxing. We'd missed each other. We were having a bottle of wine. This one time, the phone rings, and she answers the phone. And it's Ken Batesworth. Tell your husband to be in Casino Square, Monaco, tomorrow at midday. Bang, phone goes down. I'm like, oh, you are joking. So I used, middle of the night, and I have to drive to Heathrow, get the flight to Nice, get no. the... Go from Nice Airport to the railway station, which is a trek, and then get the train to Monaco. I'd be in Casino Square for midday. He'd be there. He always held court at the Café de Paris every morning. Um, all his meetings and stuff was held there. And it would normally be an hour of his finger in my face. You're useless. You're this. You're that. Uh <laughs> Followed by the most amazing three-course lunch with the most expensive bottle of wine. <laughs> and it, it, it was just, what a character. Um, I mean, this this guy deliberately had hard seats in his boardroom because he wanted people to sit there and feel uncomfortable. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it, was, it was the most bizarre time. But like I say, six months would, would make at least a chapter or two in a book if I ever wrote it. Well, there's um, stuff in the commission. Well, I'm all for being open-minded, but I'm not all for discussing this live on air. Thank you. We are profoundly uh, sorry. Oh, yeah. Right, 2014 then, and you moved to Signal 1 to do Drive. Um, I know when I got the breakfast show on Signal, um, you sent me a lovely message just to wish me well, and uh, I wasn't... A, really aware of what signal was like and you said it's an amazing place to work and it's very unique yes uh unique as in going back to 1982 <laughs> <laughs> no comment rick no comment you know what i mean god bless them uh there was a lot of them the only radio station i've ever worked at with four permanent engineers yeah Three true. receptionists and jam tarts on the reception desk. <laughs> Seven studios, one of which had a grand piano and a drum kit in it. <laughs> it is, I, I have some very fun memories and some some challenging ones as well. Uh, <laughs> oh, me too. Uh, me too. I, they, they did not like me at Signal. They, they, I don't think the staff really liked me very much. Um, so the jocks, yeah, I got on really well with the jocks, but people in sales and I, they didn't like me. Um, I remember the head of sales at one point, I was about five months in doing drive and, uh, and I'd said something like, um, oh, I enjoyed the show today. And he went, well, it's sounding better. Uh, and I was, I was like, oh, wow. Okay. And I remember, um, I remember some, some of the callers. So I'd done something about, I'd done traffic and travel, and I'd said something like, there's pedestrians on the M6. And I'd said something like, probably morons who've decided to go for a, a quick stroll, or something like that. Yeah. And, and the phone lines lit up, and I answered the, one of the lines, and this woman said, well, that's the reason no one's listening to your radio show. And I went, well, you were bloody listening, weren't you? <laughs> uh, they just, I, I, they didn't like me. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's move on quickly then um, to Radio City 2. Well, you return yeah. back home again, Rick. This is great. Radio City 2 
without doubt, was my favorite period of broadcasting ever. Was it? Yeah. It was uh, Chris Rick had hired me. Chris Rick at the time was running Radio City, and Radio City Talk was on FM, and they decided to to flip it. So Radio City Talk went to AM, and that freed up an FM frequency, which meant, and you know, they're like gold. Um, so they launched Radio City 2 on FM. I was at Signal at the time, and I signed the contract for Radio City 2 six months before my Signal contract was up. Um, Chris Rick was the boss, and there's a lovely story there. Um, he he had a few drinks at a Christmas party once, Chris Rick, and he said, you know, the, the only reason I'm in radio is because when you were doing evenings on Radio City in the early 90s, my auntie sent a message um, over my birthday, and he said, you went really mad on the air, and you, and, and you gave me the biggest, best, and longest birthday message ever. You went, oh, hello, Christopher Rick, it's your birthday, I hope you're having a good day, mate, blah, blah, blah. And when I heard that, I realized that I wanted to be in radio, so I thought, oh, that's a lovely story. Yeah. So he hired me along with Mike Cass, and I started driving Radio City too. and the whole, the brief of the station was music variety, and we were playing the greatest hits, music variety, personality, and localness. And I think you'd agree with me that having that as a brief from a from management is probably the best brief ever. Yeah. We want you to be we want your personality to shine through. We want you to talk about the area you grew up in and you know and you love. And we're gonna play all these hits mostly from the 80s and 90s, but we're not gonna have the repetition that you sometimes get with commercial radio. And wow. that was the brief. And it was great. I absolutely loved it. Every single minute of it. We did loads of interaction with the audience. Radio City 2 was only in existence for two years, but it was, it would have, if it had been on air another six months, it would have overtaken the original Radio City in, in Rager. Wow. It was, it was doing so well. And then of course we hear the rumors about greatest hits radio and then that happened. <laughs> but I know you've got quite good memories of doing, cause you obviously then went on to do evenings at greatest hits cause you, you, in, you enjoyed that to a certain extent? I mean, I, I know it was... I, I'm guessing you would have probably been quite frustrated with the change in format. I hated it. <laughs> I was setting you up there, Rick. I was setting you up. Um, there's a couple of reasons. I mean, change happens, and I'm, I'm not anti-change, and I'm not the sort of person that is bitter about the changes that have, have occurred in our industry over the last few years not at all you know change happens and in in a number of ways some of it's good and i i really regretted the, the demise of radio city 2 because there was a couple of options on the table apparently at the time they could have left radio city 2 where it was because it was on fm and it was doing really well and they decided to um encapsulate it into the greatest hits network which is fine um the, the the main reason I didn't enjoy my time there was because I wasn't wanted. So on the day I was told that I was moving to evenings on Greatest Hits, apparently, and this may or may not be true, but apparently two or three times during that day, it had been decided they were just going to let me go. They weren't, they weren't going to take me on to Greatest Hits. They were just going to say, well, thanks for everything, goodbye. And I know for a fact that Chris Rick God bless him. I kind of fought my corner and said, 
well, hang on, his, his figures on drive are amazing, blah, blah, blah. You could, um, and eventually they'd gone, okay, well, we'll stick him on evenings. Um, so from day one, I knew I wasn't really wanted there. Well, um, present day, you're now doing shows, weekends and cover at uh, In Demand. Because In Demand's doing really well, isn't it? Yeah, really well, and and it's so it's so greatly received in the northwest and advertising wise, they've got loads of clients. Um, you know, I, I don't really want to mention figures, but they they're, they're doing really good good business, good money. Well, that is positive to hear. Do you know one thing, Rick? And I've talked to a lot of people to say that I was going to be chatting to you for this episode of Crunch and Roll. Oh, oh God! No, no. Do you know everybody has said what a nice person you are. Everybody. Oh, that's very nice. Do you think there's some people I need to try and get in touch with who'd tell me otherwise? Oh, there's bound to be a few. <laughs> um, yeah, my boss at Greatest Hits Radio. <laughs> 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 I, th- um, I, I think you mentioned your biggest regret, but I, I sometimes stick this question in there because, you know, I, I like to know. But what was your biggest regret? I think the way things ended up at Key 103 was probably a regret because if I'd have stayed a bit longer, um, I probably could have gone to Capital. I had that. I had the famous meeting with Richard Park that many of us have had um, at Euston Tower where he, Clive Dickens took me down there and Richard Park said, um, go to Power FM and do Drive and in a year's time, you'll be on Capital. And, and I'd said probably naively i'd said well why do i want to go to power fm and do drive when i'm doing drive on q103 and it's the biggest drive show outside of london and i think i pissed him off so <laughs> so that's a that's a bit of a i mean he's quite easy to piss off yeah, let's face. Yeah, yeah. um but i i i think that was a slight regret apart from that None really. I mean, you 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 go where the river takes you, don't you? In in many many circumstances, I think there've been times where I've been really lucky to have opportunities fall in my lap, or or make a phone call, you know, and go, I I need work, and someone who you've worked with previously, or someone who knew about you, has gone, yeah, great, we'll we'll sort something out. I think the industry as as we as we speak now is vastly changed. You know, you'll be well aware of what's happening with BBC Local Radio and most commercial stations now are part of a network of one type or the other. Um, So it's harder now. But I also think there's there's still lots of opportunity there. I mean, these local DAB stations now are really tough. I mean, In Demand is a great example of stations that have been started out of passion and love and, and everything else, or they've seen a gap in the market and they've gone, you know what? We're going to do this, and they're doing well. They're earning money. They're able to pay wages. It's not like back in the day when you'd start a sort of community station and you'd be struggling to make ends meet. There's a lot of opportunity out there, I think. Well, Rick, um, it's been an absolute delight to catch up with you over the last hour. Um, you're definitely somebody that I've been desperate to get on Crunch and Roll because I, I, I remember when I sat, I, was, I must have been about 21, 22 years old, sat with you and Mike Borden. And uh, we're having that pizza, and I'm trying to work out what scouse things you were saying. I'm like, are they there, mate? I'm not <laughs> entirely sure. But I just remember looking at you thinking you're a legend, you know, a legend in the game, and your CV certainly uh, certainly shows that and demonstrates that. So, Rick, thank you very much. 
Thank you. It's an absolute honor, you know. I've listened to every Crunch and Roll episode, and they're all great, and I'm honored to be part of the roll call, if you like, of some of those amazing people that you've already spoken to, and uh, and the very best with it, because it's great. Uh, Rick, we always ask our guests to finish Crunch and Roll. Um, have you done any voiceover? I'm guessing you have. Yes, I, I used to be the... I, w- I was the voice of the new 96.9 Air FM. Um, whilst I was at Key 103 for about two years, I think I was the station voice for Air. You've been listening to Crunch and Roll with me, Rick Horton. Subscribe on your favourite podcast app to get every new episode as soon as it drops. Crunch and Roll is a 969 media production presented by John Fox and produced by Simon Bashovsky. Did I say that right?